Welcome. Thanks for being here. Now it's time for you to listen to someone talk about whatever topic they want with no opportunity to reply. Does this form remind you of anything? For me, school and adolescence are wrapped up in my memory with the adolescent who was in charge when I was in school. If you feel like you'll never be a grown-up, that you're stuck in a rut of permanent adolescence, that you're a failure who will never accomplish anything, here's some inspiring words from 2001. For those of you who received honors, awards, and distinctions, I say well done. And to the C students, I say, you too can be president of the United States. This doesn't seem like the 2001 that I remember. Pre-September is no longer comprehensible to us. And this is the president's commencement address to the Yale graduating class, May 2001. A speech like this could not have been delivered to the class of 2002. The juniors sweating through this ceremony would one year later graduate into a world that everyone, especially the speaker, proclaimed had irreversibly changed. Certainly Bush irreversibly changed, he would never again appear in public as joyfully as this. Such a shame that even in his supreme moment of manufactured triumph on the aircraft carrier, he had to adhere to the pretense of solemnity. This jovial bush of May disappeared in September, along with, it seemed, everything that was simple and carefree and good. Americans were told that we had all graduated that day, the class of 2001, descending the stage in our somber black uniforms down into a new world of fear, sacrifice, and trust in a higher power. George W. Bush. Oh, it's so Welcome to Never Forget Radio, where, from the comfort of your own home or your device, and from the safety of the future, we can revisit the memory of 9-11, of George W. Bush, and of all the years associated with both since. It's been over a decade of disappointment, failure, and disaster. I'm no expert, but I'll be your host as we explore our recent past and try to reclaim it. Let's roll. Today we have a special guest. We're procuring his services through the doctrine of fair use. I read about this on Wikipedia. It says you can use copyrighted material for an educational or historical purpose. Here he is through the doctrine of fair use and his autobiography, Decision Points. Introduction. In the final year of my presidency, I began to think seriously about writing my memoirs. My hope is that this audiobook will serve as a starting point for anyone studying this period in American history. I hope this will give you a better sense of why I made the decisions I did. Perhaps it will even prove useful as you make choices in your own life. Well, I've recently made some choices in my life. I've spent a lot of time with our guest, whose audiobook is six and a half hours long. 
I thought, like he says, that it might be a good starting point for someone studying the period. I'm confident that my negative views are strong enough to resist all this contact. But the more time I spend with our former president, the more I'm frightened. Decision points frightens me. I'm afraid of conversion, of faith, of the power of organizational messaging. I have a habitual personality. This is why I haven't read Ayn Rand. Why should I have the hubris and the self-confidence to think that where so many people have gone before me intending to not be converted and then been converted, why should I think that I'd be different? I'm not confident in my ability to resist persuasion. At first I was troubled by my doubts. I don't have that black and white bushing outlook. I can't just look at powerful systems like religion or conservatism, objectivism, or rape culture. I can't just look at them and see a faceless evil mass like some of my fellow leftists can, like presumably Bush saw Islam or France. That's too easy. It doesn't respect the power of ideological systems and messages and formulas, things that are designed to reach and appeal to people who are lost, who are not happy with their lives or directions. Did I want to spend time at home with our girls or stay out drinking? Would I rather read in bed with Laura? or drank bourbon by myself after the family had gone to sleep? Could I continue to grow closer to the Almighty, or was alcohol becoming my God? Did I want to be spending time at home with my partner, or time alone listening to a six-hour audiobook by George W. Bush? I'm afraid of the power of personalized formulas to convert the unwary, the cocksure, the arrogant. The notion of a living God was a big leap especially for someone with a logical mind like mine. I'm worried because I'm aware of my own fallibilities, vulnerabilities, weakness. I knew the answers, but it was hard to summon the will to make a change. You can't fight these things with power. You can't position yourself as better, stronger, or smarter. Another habit. You know, Maureen Tucker of the Velvet Underground ended up in the Tea Party. I'm furious about the way we're being led towards socialism. I'm furious about the incredible waste of money. The new right is abhorrent. Let's not let them distract us from remembering the awfulness of the old right. My head started to clear. Or, well, let's not be distracted from the new right by looking back at the old right. The cross currents in my life came into focus. Um, For months I had been praying that God would show me how to better reflect his will. I'm afraid that I'll listen to Bush narrate his autobiography, I'll find him sympathetic, and I'll change. Like he did when he found God and stopped drinking and started running. Faith showed me a way out. I knew I could count on the grace of God to help me change. He subjected himself to a higher power. He would call it God, and I would call it religion. He let Christ into his life. Now I'm going to let him into mine. And I appreciate your giving me an opportunity to share my story. We have to talk about Bush. We cannot forget him. But I don't want to make him cool. I don't want to bring him back to hipsterize him. Or worse, the last thing we need is another Reaganite deification where hagiographic interpretations of his policies and ideals become a malign grafted growth encrusted on the soft yielding flank of permanent government, an implacable mold cluster oozing down the telephone pole of the state, a parasitic remora jaw dug into the tail fin of a straining encumbered nation, a determined mollusk latched to the waiting angle of progress. I got carried away there a little bit. I have a lot of feelings about our former presidents. But what if 10 or 20 years from now we finally make it to a post, post-9-11 world only to find neo-neoconservatives who name airports after him and put him on currency and he's suddenly praised by both sides of the aisle? You never know how the past is going to turn out. Tell him.
I believe it will not be possible to reach definitive conclusions about my presidency, or any recent presidency for that matter, for several decades. The passage of time allows passions to cool, results to clarify, and scholars to compare different approaches. <clears throat> well, it's been several decades since Reagan's presidency, and there is now broad historical consensus that he was a wriggling, toothy, tapeworm pilfering crucial nutrients from the American intestine. Um, uh... Bush studied history at Andover and Yale. I studied it at the Preparatory Academy of Popular Fiction and then several years at Wikipedia University. I discovered a lifelong love of history. Yale was a place where I felt free to discover and follow my passion, history, which became my major. History, especially biography, especially autobiography, is fiction. It's a fiction of a different kind. If you apply a narrative to explain records of events, if you add fictional devices, structure, logic, character arcs, development, shoehorning events into a narrative structure fictionalizes them. It's hard to tell a story about yourself or about anything without changing a few details, moving the timing around so it works better, conflating characters, condensing situations, sprinkling metaphors, remaking the unruly chaos of the present into the smoothly flowing logical story of the past, giving actions meaning and people purpose. Whether in fiction or history, it's easier to buy a protagonistic narrative than to think about power and money and abstraction. Our collective faith in this fictional structure has allowed in the 20th century the power of the presidency to be imperially increased. Because our culture is so invested in the protagonistic story model that it makes sense for us to be led, to consent to the rule of one man as opposed to a collective government, leaderless, anarchic system, or a non-hierarchical witch council, for example. Our fiction reinforces our leadership system. And in this autobiography and in his public persona, Bush is adhering to the fictional structure of the failure who changes and makes good. My final year at Andover, I had a history teacher named Tom Lyons. Here's Bush telling the story of how he got into college. As the days at Andover wound down, it came time to apply to college. My first thought was Yale. After all, I was born there. Despite my family ties, I doubted I would be accepted. My grades and test scores were respectable, but behind many in my class. At the mailbox one day, I was stunned to find a thick envelope with a Yale acceptance. Mr. Lyons had written my recommendation, and all I could think that he must have come up with quite a letter. Even though his father and grandfather both went to Yale, he attributes his success in admissions to a well-written letter by a favorite teacher. The real story is that every bit of his success from his admission to his business career to the governorship to the presidency is due to his family connections. They were powerful and wealthy on all sides. Not just his father, George Herbert Walker Bush, the president, or his mother, Barbara Pierce Bush, descended from wealthy publishers, distantly related to President Franklin Pierce, or his grandfather, Prescott Bush, the senator, whose father, Samuel Prescott, and father-in-law, George Herbert Walker, were both Gilded Age industrialists. You can see why it might take him until he was 40 to straighten himself out and join the family business. The Bushes are true blue bloods. At one point in decision points, Bush has been re-elected governor. I also had my eye on another race that night. My brother Jeb became governor of Florida by a convincing margin, making us the first pair of brothers to serve at the same time as governors. Impressive, right? But then it turns out that that statement actually needs a qualifier because they're not the first brothers to be governors at the same time, and he qualifies it. 
making us the first pair of brothers to serve at the same time as governors since Nelson and Wynn Rockefeller more than a quarter century earlier. It was a wonderful moment for our family. Unintentionally making a glaringly obvious comparison between his family and that one, both impossibly powerful and wealthy. I had a few beers with the guys on Monday night. On Tuesday, I'd fix my favorite after-dinner drink, Benedictine and Brandy. I had a couple of bourbon and sevens after I put Barbara and Jenna to bed on Wednesday. Thursday and Friday were beer drinking nights. On Saturday, Laura and I had gone out with friends. I had martinis before dinner, beers with dinner, and Fair use. after dinner. So this is the bush that I learned about during my studies at Wikipedia University. Quite different from the character who was presented to the American public in 2000. A candidate is not a person. A candidate is like a film. It's a collaborative art form. There are screenwriters and makeup technicians and prop masters and clappers and rigging operators, and there's a best boy. A close friend, political strategist Carl Rove. Like a film, a candidate is only based on a real person. Candidate, like a film, has many authors, just like an autobiography of a famous person. My perspective on the presidency, in my own words. The story that the many authors of the Bush candidacy and the many authors of this autobiography wrote is a classic sympathetic fictional narrative. Bush, the protagonist, the everyman, is a failure and disappointment in school, in college, in business, until when everything is at its lowest, when he hits his drunken bottom, he changes, he finds God, he's redemptively reborn. This is the narrative that got him elected. Enough people, some percentage of the American votership, believed that story. They saw something of themselves in Bush. So Bush's producers, the people who put him together, him the candidate, not him the man, Bush's producers and Bush the actor who played that character, were better at establishing him inside the sympathetic narrative than, say, Gore's producers, or Gore the actor. Gore came from the same background. Like me, he had graduated from an Ivy League school and had a father in politics. But our personalities seemed pretty different. He appeared stiff, serious, and aloof. Their personalities seemed pretty different because Bush was a far better actor. Well, I, I will be, I'll be offering my vision when my campaign begins. Uh, it'll be comprehensive and sweeping, and I hope that it'll be compelling enough to draw people toward it. I feel that it will be. Sounds like development hell. That attitude's not going to get you anywhere at the box office. The producers of the Bush character and the actor who acted it out profited quite literally, obviously, just like the producers of a Hollywood film that uses the same narrative structure. Political campaigns work for the same reasons that formulaic Hollywood movies become treasured guilty pleasures. This mythological structure is so persuasive that despite all my aesthetic pretensions, theoretical abstractions, political leftism, I cannot help but be sympathetic to and drawn to Bush, that character. Even though I know that it, not he, was created by talented writers and canny producers and played by an excellent actor. They've written such a powerful story with a third act that seems so unlikely, a shift that is unexpected and redemptive. He turns his life around, he gives up drinking and he starts running, and he proves everybody wrong, and he wins in the end. It's a story that has literally been inspiring to millions, and it inspires me. 
I didn't believe it when he ran or when he was the president. I was between the ages of 13 and 21, heading safely and securely on the path of graduations, accolades, job offers. Heading towards a certain future of success. Confident I'd never be compelled or converted to dominant ideology. Totally secure in my worldview, just like Bush. He saw the world in black and white, good and evil, and I saw him in the same terms. The world made sense to me. There was a villain, a cartoonish, simian, abhorrent villain in the White House, with an obviously manufactured storyline that I would never fall for. But 21 is really young, and graduations don't really mark the onset of adulthood. Things have not gone exactly as expected. Just like Bush after college, I have not had the expected success that my parents planned and paid for. So now, after all these years, I can't help but want to believe this story. To believe that failures can make good, that wandering sons become president, and that people who've gone way off their expected paths can veer right back onto them. That even an overprivileged underachiever like me can be a success. That anyone can change. Maybe I can still grow up to be a commencement speaker. Parents, grandparents, students, teachers, congratulations to the class of 2001. I know this ceremony is only symbolic. Though it's been several years and we've changed deans, chancellors, trustees, administrators, it doesn't seem like the Bush years or even the Bush presidency have ended. We will talk again soon about the eternal present, the unending 2001 in which we still find ourselves. But if you feel like nothing's going to change, remember this inspirational story, the tale of a man who no one could have expected would become president. Someone who overcame personal challenges to reach the top. The character whose life story offers everyone the opportunity to succeed. The candidate who embodies hope and change. George W. Bush. Never Forget Radio is a production of Bookstyle Publications, currently located in West Philadelphia. Music for this episode is provided by Old Table and Jay-Z. Find out more at intellectualbirdrecords.blogspot.com and lifeandtimes.com. The term non-hierarchical witch cancel is borrowed from Caroline Cantillo, I am Caroline, on Twitter. For further explanation on the fair use doctrine or Jay-Z's reasonable doubt, please consult Title 17 of the United States Code, Section 107, Subsections 1, 2, 3, and 4. If you like this program and want to know more, or suggest a future topic or offer a piece of your mind, particularly criticism from the left, you can find us at neverforgetradio.tumblr, neverforgetradio at gmail, or neverforgetpod on Twitter. All of our episodes can be downloaded for free. If you'd like to support this project, please feel free to donate any amount. Decision Points earned George Bush a $7 million advance. The first three episodes of Never Forget Radio have been released together, and you can expect new ones shortly. Here's a closing word from our co-host. I hope you've enjoyed listening to these thoughts as much as I've enjoyed recording them. Thank you, and never forget. Never forget.